This episode is sponsored by Mint Home Loans. With mortgage interest rates nearing all-time lows, now is the time to see what options you may qualify for. Make Mint Home Loans your trusted partner for all your mortgage needs. In today's times, your money matters. Shop local with Mint at 410-458-6847 for any home loan questions you may have. Welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. I'm Dustin Plantholt, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have. Everyone, when you think about it, well, they have a story. Yet some stories, they seem more riveting than others. That is to be expected. I mean, after all, isn't your story the basis for a movie, a book, a series? Our guest today, he has a story, a powerful story. In 1995, Matthew Zachary was 21, a college senior with aspirations of becoming a concert pianist and composer. Then he was diagnosed with brain cancer and told he would likely not survive six months. Matthew and his family were thrust into a cancer landscape much different than today. At the time, cancer resources for young adults were few and far between, and surviving meant living beyond five years. Although Matthew and his family were offered comfort through a small, fragmented community, they were not able to benefit from many of today's survivorship resources. Like millions of other families, they had to go in it on their own and hope for the best. In 2012, Matthew founded Stupid Cancer, a progressive social enterprise that linked his world of music, cancer advocacy, consumer health marketing, and technology to ensure that people like him and his family would have the opportunity to benefit from community and support resources they only wished they had in 1995. Since its founding, Stupid Cancer has become the leader in the young adult cancer space. The podcast he started, The Stupid Cancer Show, was the world's first health podcast and amassed a global listenership in the millions. I'm excited and honored to have him as our guest today. Matthew, welcome to Life's Tough. Dustin, it's a pleasure to be here, and you're very handsome. Well, thank you very much. I, you know, I hear that quite a bit, Matt, as I imagine you do as well. And uh, now you're a podcaster, so I got to tell you, I rarely get put on the spot where I start to get a little bit nervous. I mean, you've had millions of listeners over the years. How did this journey begin for you? Because you must have been able to connect with those listeners. How did you connect? Well, the dime store, which led me to become America's first health radio show host before the word podcast became syllables you put together in a word, was I was a concert pianist uh, and trained film composer going to grad school, and I lost the use of my left hand before my senior year in college began. Six months later, after misdiagnosis, was given a terminal brain cancer diagnosis, told I'd be dead in six months. Spoiler, didn't happen, but I was not able to pursue a career in music. And I fell back on my plan B, which was fixing Macintoshes in the 90s. <laughs> that was that's, my skill. That's how it is. <laughs> so, Highly coveted skill, though. And then that paved the way towards my, uh, how my plan B then turned back into a plan A. But how did you not quit? I mean, many people, when, they, when they're facing something like that, 
they quit along the way. They give up. They throw in the towel. As we say, life's tough. You could be tougher, but not everybody decides to be tougher. How did Matt find that strength? Where was your fuel? Yeah, I leaned in before. That was a term. I guess I doubled down on the idea that I was just a stupid, invincible 21-year-old and saw this as a speed bump. And it never dawned on me that I would actually die. It just didn't dawn on me. I'm like, I'll just like brush this off. You know, you are only like fly on the v on Vigo. It was <laughs> yeah. nothing, you know. And I never felt that literal, you know, grim reaper bearing down my soul. I just kept enduring and kept getting up every day and managed to get through the, the crap that there was. And my last day of treatment was April 30th, 1996. I went through all these other every three months, every three months. I lost my hair. I lost my weight. I, I, I lost 110 pounds. I lost my virility, fertility, everything. And I was a shell of a person sleeping 20 hours a day in my parents' bed when I was supposed to be in L.A. And yet I was still determined to do something. I don't know where that came from outside of just maybe predisposed moxie and chutzpah from my parents. Wow, it sounds like you had a great support. I mean, this must have been very challenging for them. I mean, here, you're their baby, you're their boy, I and mean, I've got young kids. I cannot imagine hearing that one of my children is being diagnosed and ultimately will likely die from a condition. I mean, what was this like on them? Yeah, I won't lie to you, it was devastating, as you can imagine it would be. I mean, I wasn't a kid, I was 21, but still, I'm their baby. You're their I'm baby, their it doesn't I mean, matter I'm the younger age. brother. And it took me years to have that sense of, um, they call it survivor guilt. When you live, but you know the impact of something you went through that you didn't ask for hurt other people and they can't blame you for that. And yeah, this to this day, 25 years later, it's still there. It's distant and, 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 and uh, you know, the hue is different. But yeah, it's, it's there every day. And I don't tell my mom I have headaches anymore, <laughs> even though it's 25 years yeah. later. But, and I just, as of today's recording, I went to the cardiologist. My heart is fine. Everything is good. And I tell them that stuff. But to the extent that the narrative of caregiving when someone you love is sick, they're part of the journey too. And that's part of my, my DNA, my template that I make sure the inclusivity of a disease isn't limited to the person that's sick. Well, that, that's an interesting way of putting it. And this morning I was talking to my producer that this word hit my head, this word empathy, that make empathy great again. I started to go online and Google it, and I found that that you also believe in empathy. And, and yet most people believe that sympathy and empathy are the same thing, but they're not. Same syllables, completely different purpose in life. And so what has that been like for you? You know, you had, you had been diagnosed, you had a lot of people feeling really bad for you, um, that must take quite a toll. Well, my dad was a very well-known educator uh, in the high school, the biggest high school on Staten Island, where I was uh, born, raised, and where I was sick. So I was, the newspapers picked this up. This poor pianist kid was given brain cancer diagnosis. And, and I was surviving. My mom wrote a letter to the paper. Like, it was very well-known that I was sick and the phone rang off the hook. This is before call waiting at caller ID when we had our corded rotaries on the wall in the kitchen and answering machines that continued to the tape and the tape. I can't really compare anything other than this was the 1990s. So it's unfair to think of how we correlate what culture and society and acceptance and tolerance and access means today, 25 years later. But what wound up happening was I just, I got a job and, and the way I got a job, and this is important. And this is, I guess, 
parenting and moxie. My, my, I'm laying on the couch. I'm sleeping 20 hours a day. I can barely figure out what to do with my life. My friends all went to grad school or they abandoned me and I had nothing except the piano and the hope I'd play again one day and scans every six weeks. And I just sat down at that piano and found an anchor and said, I'm not going to let cancer ruin whatever I have left of a piano career. And I just started composing again. So that was my anchor, getting back on the piano and writing music. Even though my left hand was a, a limp nubbin compared to the 11 years of training I had, it had lost all of its muscle memory. So for me, I just, I just felt that I'm not going to let this do this one thing to me. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die a pianist. And do you still play? I do. And All what's, the time. What's that like? And I will tell you that, so I'm, I'm 37. I've always wanted to learn the piano, yet it's something that appears to be so intimidating, so tough, um, that you actually have to work at it and it takes many years. I mean, is it easier than that? Or is it something you have to commit and go all in on? I'm a fan of your DNA as a driver to your inherent talents, but everything is learnable to that extent. I just happen to have the ability to read music and understand things really quickly, but I did make the point of training and learning and sight singing and sight reading, went to undergraduate for that, that study, but I, I just took to it. And, you know, there are so many easier ways today to learn how to play piano than there were back in the day when you had to find some Harvard or Juilliard trained person to slap your wrist like a nun with a stick to say no this way. Yeah. And and so today, I mean, getting into the world of now you're the coach, you're the one giving people guidance to get them through their tough days, days that for most would seem impossible. And yet for you and your story, that was impossible. Does it ever hit you to go that for, for most people out there, the things that that start to break them, that start to, to make them feel bad for themselves, those stories can't even compare to your story. I don't like to think of anything as comparative. It's really objectivism. And yes, there's always people that were worse off than me. There are people that have died with the same cancer that I had. And there are people that maybe got off, quote, scot-free, but it's unfair to correlate that because that's still their experience. Well said. And I think that's where we lose empathy and appreciation for other people's stories in this country by assumptiveness. And that's just ignorance. Yeah. And I also work with this fundamental dogma of, you know, when you have to go shopping in the shit happens store, you know, you're not, you're not there on purpose. You're not there by choice. You're sucked into it. And there's no one to greet you. There's no one to show you like Abe Simpson in the Walmart outfit, you know, go to aisle seven and buy this or talk to Trisha in pharmacy and get this. And if you've finished your shopping in that shit happens store, it is your moral, ethical, empathetic obligation to be the greeter that you wish you had had. And that's the path I live today. And it's one that has created quite the following. I mean, with that great, great, great responsibility comes with it. I mean, what's it been like for people around the world looking up to you and reaching out to you and asking you to hold them accountable or, or asking your guidance and advice? What's it been like for you? I mean, I think it's a level of accessibility with transparency and humility that I'm not a Sherpa. I'm not a seer. And I know I become a cancer celebrity of sorts, if I can coin that term here on your show. I like it. You sure can. And again, it is very Spider-Man. It is very, with great power comes great responsibility. And I am, I have an obligation to the fact that I'm still 
my dad would say, above the tulips, so to speak. That's right. And to, to be there and serve and help and support. And yes, it, it is, we talk about caregiving and I need to be mindful of myself so I can be well enough to be there for other people. And yeah, it's been a, a I think Tony Stark said a terrible privilege in Iron Man to be Iron Man. And that's, that's how I live every day. And where are you where, today? Like, what are you working on? What are some of the fun things that uh, you got in front of you? So what I'm doing today, I, I started a media company in audio broadcasting for patient advocacy, consumer protection, and health literacy. Those are jargony syllables. But at the end of the day, I want to be the greeter in chief of the shit happens store through podcasting. For anyone <laughs> yeah. that happened. That, that I, I like, look, I, I like it. Yeah. I mean, it's because it's yeah. life. Life is raw. And it's brutal, and it's going to kick you, beat you up, throw you down, and it's what you do with it and how you keep getting back up. I mean, isn't that the challenge of life? What are you going to do next? Yeah, I when I was at rock bottom, I mean, like, literally, I think the treatment to my cancer at the time, which is, it's a moving target. They don't do that anymore, thank God, 25 years later. But what I had gone through treatment-wise, radiation and surgery, was so much worse than actually being sick before I was diagnosed. And I had to come up with some kind of mantra, some kind of, I don't mean like a transcendental meditation mantra, but some kind of like uh, metaphor, axiom, something like that. And I, I settled on this and I, I will never forget it. And I had a, um, I'll geek out. I had a, a color inkjet printer in 1996, which no one else owned by Epson. It was the first printer. I'm geeking out on tech. And I printed out in color in multiple fonts because I had a Mac that did fonts. The following, everything that happens to you in your life becomes a part of your life and you must choose to get busy living every step of the way because what choice do you have? Yeah, that, that's, isn't that the case with everything? I mean, you see what's happening in the world now with COVID and a group of people living in fear, I, I could get it and die, that I'm more vulnerable and another group saying, open it up, everybody's fine, or everything will go back to, to normal. And yet this new world we live in, things will not go back to normal. And so the question I have for you is, what will it be like, Matt? I mean, you've, in the early days and back in your, your 20s, you were living in a bubble. You had this cloud over your head, uh, and yet you found a way through it. What do you think is going to happen in the world with, with people that are going through this trauma, that are dealing with these experiences where they're being told they might not have much longer to live, and now they can't go do the things that they had dreamed of doing? There's a wonderful metaphor, which is an unfortunate metaphor, but it's a life interrupted. And it puts you at a fork in the road based on how much choice you have. And the choice that you have is only as objective as the choices you know you have. So it really, I don't like the expression, just be your own advocate, but if, if it's possible to surround yourself with a tribe that has sort of no judgments and no stigma, it's a bit of a handrail and an anchor that some people need. And whether that's someone in a community of color or someone in the LGBT community or someone young or someone old, finding the right kind of tribe, not like cult tribe, but just tribe. And understanding what dignity means to you. So you say to yourself, if I wasn't sick, what would I be doing versus I'm sick or bad things happen to me? What means the most to me that I want to make sure I can do? And at a bare minimum, if you can water that down to the fundamentals, I want to hug my kids. I want to see my daughter graduate. I want to, you know, buy that boat. I, not, not bucket list stuff, 
practical day-to-day things that matter to you as your personal anchor. That's how I like to set my litmus test of things I feel I can accomplish when bad things happen to me and how I try my best to impart that, that idea, that functional way of living life through challenge is understand where things matter most to you so that whatever happens to you is done on your terms. And, and there's a great quote that I stole, you know, because good artists copy and great artists steal. Idea thieves, which, absolutely. Yeah, which is at the base of my website, matthewzachary.com, which is like um, the real change happens when patients are in charge of their own outcomes. Absolutely. I mean, when we talk about legacy, that don't you get to decide – for the most part, what your legacy will be. So you were dealt a very tough hand, a, a tough story. And to you, your story is the basis for a show. It's the basis for a movie, a TV series. And yet for you, it is not done yet. You keep writing new chapters for the story and one that you're inspiring the next generation that will follow to say, well, if, if it didn't break Matt and he got back up from it, then maybe I too can get through my tough days. But it takes that leadership so who've been some of the people that have inspired you? Who have been some of the people that have mentored you on your journey? Yeah, I mean, the, the word is hope. And I think that word is often overused in the wrong contexts. Hope is how you feel capable of living in any given moment and what you believe might be possible based on any dogmatic or deistic principle you may or may not live by. And it's unique. Every single person should have their own interpretation of what hope means. I happened to get very, very lucky, and I met Bernie Siegel, if you've heard of Bernie Siegel. Anyone, can listen, anyone listening can Google him. He is the earliest adopter of mind-body medicine as a cancer surgeon in the 1970s and 80s. And he wrote a book called Love, Medicine, and Miracles that was published in the 1980s. It's in this like 43rd edition now you can buy it on Amazon. And he was lambasted and pretty much shut down by the medical community for daring to go against traditional Western medicine as a way to have empathy and care for people when it's more than just the biology of what it needs to help you live a life beyond anything bad. And I had the, I called the guy back when the days when you could just call people up. I called him up. He was in Connecticut with his wife. And I said, Bernie, you don't know me. I need to know you. Can we please talk? And he said, of course. And over the, I think between 99 and 2005, we talked all the time. And he was very heavily involved in helping me understand things I couldn't possibly deal with even before I was 30 years old. And he's my hero. He was there for me. And I had the benefit of meeting Deepak Chopra before he was Deepak Chopra. And he was a phenomenal seer for me and a gentleman named Andrew Weil. And Wayne Dyer, these up and coming, you know, f- philosophists. Is that a word? Philosophers? Yeah, philosophers, you know? philosophers. We can make up whatever words we want. <laughs> it's just two guys hanging out. I just had a very lucky opportunity to meet these incredible people who today stand the test of time as, you know, the Tony Robbinses, who yeah. gave birth to the Tony Robbinses of, of the universe. And they're my heroes. And then, of course, I wouldn't be who I am without the community that surrounded me and supported me that I built through Stupid Cancer, the nonprofit I founded for adolescents and young adults. It was a Gen X therapy-ish kind of cancer <laughs> club. Yeah, And, you know, there are so many people that inspired me every day to just 
keep going. And, you know, I, I wound up just to go back, to go forward. I settled in a career in advertising and marketing before I started the nonprofit because I just had to make a living. My dad's like, if you're going to die, die employed. So I just, <laughs> I, I got a job, wasn't a musician and I worked I my way up your, the- I got to get your dad on the show. He sounds <laughs> yeah. like he'd be a real yeah. good time. I worked my way up the Madison Avenue, you know, ladder and I learned about branding and marketing. And, and I, it took me a long time to meet somebody who also had my cancer. And I think that goes back to tribalism and knowing you're not alone. These, the sheer utter isolation factor that anyone can face when they enter that, you know, shit happens store. That was my entry point into understanding I could be what they called an advocate. I didn't know what that meant. But for me, it meant being the greeter in the store for the next person, not necessarily passing a bill on the Hill or lobbying a state senator person. And, 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 and the, the, I would say the, the Margaret Mead folks that I had encountered, again, very lucky, very fortunate. I feel like I'm a byproduct of that cottage industry of early adopters of what we now call cancer survivorship, which is basically rehabilitation and dignity after cancer happens in your life, to boil that jargon down. They're my heroes, and they're still my heroes. And of course, my mentors who we've lost over time and I'll pay tribute to two women on the show specifically, Ellen Stovall and Selma Schimmel. You don't have to know who they are, but just in terms of memorializing two of my other heroes. And I'll, I'll mention Selma Schimmel specifically because she's why I'm doing what I do today. She's the woman who ran the only terrestrial cancer radio show in the 1990s. Like AM radio wow. cancer show, terrestrial. She schlepped this van and a crew like the eyewitness news van <laughs> to all of the cancer conferences. And she became like a big sister to me. And she said, Matt, we have an opportunity for you to do a internet version of my show. I want to give it to you. Go forth and do your thing. And that was when I became a, a shock jock broadcaster for calling out bullshit in healthcare and cancer. And what I'm doing today, launching a podcast, you know, uh, health advocacy network, is is in her honor and in her spirit. So um, that was a long answer to a short question, but I would say Bernie Siegel, Deepak Chopra, Alan Stovall, Selma Schimmel, and the early gang that got me started. They sound like an absolutely remarkable, remarkable group of people uh, that I like to refer to as those are the angels, the, the people that lift you up with their wings, especially when you need it the most. And yes. so advice, someone out there right now in the world that hears this, you know, right now, people aren't at their best. And if you're living with a condition or you've been diagnosed with a condition, you have a family member with a condition, or maybe it's in your head. You're just not at your best. You're at your worst. What advice do you give to somebody right now to help pull them up? Because now you're the new angel. You're the one out there that's the light saying, look, I'm strong enough for all of us. Come here. Get on my shoulders. I'm going to go back to why I started Stupid Cancer. Uh, which again, your listeners can, it's still there. I, I stepped down 18 months ago, but stupidcancer.org. I started it because I was angry. And I wasn't just angry that, I was grateful that I was alive 10 years after they told me I'd be dead. But I was angry that bad things still happen to good people. And I looked at the landscape, and this is analogous to how we see today with mental health and stress and anxiety and anything that can plague you and just bring you down every day. And 
back then everything was wristbands and ribbons and you'll be fine in pink and colors and body parts and tribalism as worst. Like you can't come here because your cancer is in that part of your body. And there had to be some like Unitarian church version of cancer that, that, what, that didn't exist. But this notion of permission to be angry, but don't lean into your anger too much. It's okay to be angry and own that anger, but channel it in a way that can be productive to accomplish the things you can do. I'll quote another random line from J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, where Chris Pine said, I don't know what to do. I only know what I can do. A great line. And thinking in that moment that it's okay to be sad, it's okay to be angry, it's okay to be pissed, it's even okay to say, why me? But only say, why me, once. It should really be, where do I go now? And what can I do now? And furthermore, like it's 2020. Thank God it's not uh, 1996. I say that with a huge asterisk because 2020 has its own narrative. But there is so much more community and awareness and access and opportunity to tribes that you can find way more readily than I had to spend seven years thinking I'm the only kid with cancer in his 20s. And without plugging any specific platforms, the mental health community is there. It's all around us. And it's accessible in many different communities, in diverse communities, in rural and urban communities. And this isn't like finding the crazy Facebook groups. There are amazing ways to just get really simple access to that idea of peer-to-peer. Someone like you, no judgments, no stigma. And if you choose to avail yourself of that, good for you. If even just knowing that they're there, but you don't want it, that's good too. But be just angry enough to feel like you are entitled to get through this on your terms. Well said. Thank you so much, Matt, for sharing your story with us. On Life's Tough, Matt Zachary is tougher. Thank you very much. A a genuine pleasure to be here. Now, for all of us out there, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we tougher? Have we been complaining? Have we allowed what has happened around us in our lives to hold us back, to keep us down? Or do we use it as our fuel to keep us going? Anger is easy. It's easy to get angry. Empathy takes practice. I challenge you to listen so you can understand that everyone has a story. Everyone you meet, they have a story. And every story has a purpose. We heard what Matt's purpose is to use his story to give others hope, to help others get through the things that are holding them back, the things that are preventing them from living a life worth living. Your story could be the thing that helps somebody through their tipping point. That moment when either they continue to be a victim or they use it as their fuel to give them the strength to rise above their condition. Life's tough. You can be tougher. Thank you again, everybody.